Thanks for downloading the In Our Time podcast. For more details about In Our Time and for our terms of use, please go to bbc.co.uk forward slash radio 4. I hope you enjoy the programme. Hello. If you were to point a reasonably powerful telescope at the surface of the Moon at latitude 17.9 degrees, longitude 92.5 degrees, you'll find yourself looking at the Al-Biruni crater. This lunar feature is named in honour of a 10th century Muslim scholar who was not only one of the greatest figures of medieval science, but is also claimed as one of the outstanding scholars of all time. Born in Central Asia, Al-Biruni was an astonishing polymath, master of mathematics, astronomy and medicine. He was equally at home in five languages and was as great a scholar of the humanities as he was a scientist. Perhaps Al-Biruni's most remarkable book is The India, a comprehensive account of Hindu religion, science, history and customs. It's the first work about India by a Muslim scholar and is so compelling a portrait of one culture seen from the perspective of another that it's been described as the first work of anthropology. With me to discuss Al-Biruni and his groundbreaking work are Amira Benison, Senior Lecturer in Middle Eastern and Islamic Studies at the University of Cambridge, Hugh Kennedy, Professor of Arabic in the School of Oriental and African Studies at the University of London, and James Montgomery, Professor of Classical Arabic at the University of Cambridge. Hugh Kennedy, can you give us Al-Biruni's full name, first of all, and then... We'll go on from there. Yes, he's Abu Raihan Muhammad bin Ahmad al-Biruni. And the Biruni bit, by which he's always known, it reflects the fact that he was born, apparently, in the suburb, the Birun, of the city of Kath in Khorazm. I've talked about his reputation as a scholar. Can you give us more informed <laughs> notion of the range of his scholarship? Well, he is, as you, as you were saying, an astonishing polymath with a wide interest in all sorts of natural sciences, in mathematics, in astronomy. And uh, the thing that he's best known for, of course, is the India that you were mentioning again, which is remarkable because for most Muslims, uh, Hinduism was simply polytheism, idol worship. Biruni is the one Muslim intellectual of his time, or indeed of the pre-modern period, who tries to get behind that and see that Hinduism is in fact a complex religion um, uh, with... Uh, many different philosophical and intellectual sides to it. We're going to spend a considerable time on India, but I'd like you to rummage around about the disciplines about which... You mentioned mathematics, you mentioned astronomy, but it went further than that even, didn't it? Yes, he was very interested, for example, in, in mineralogy and the uh, the weights of different uh, minerals and things like that. There was almost well, nothing that he saw around him that didn't attract his interest. Now, his first book was an attempt to sum up the different eras that different cultures used, how they calculated their years and things like that. This, as we understand it, this was seen when he was quite young. At 17, he was already uh, uh, considered to be an advanced mathematician and he was also very interested in languages. I just want to build this up a bit before we get cracking. Yes, and he wrote some 140 books. And not all of those were very big books. Um, but uh, the, the India, again, come back to it, is, is 600 pages in the, in the English translation. And so it's a serious, it's, it's a, it's a serious work. He, he must have written sort of continuously uh, to, to achieve this. Of these books, about a quarter survive. He was born uh, in around 973, not completely certain, but it's around then. In what we now call Uzbekistan, is that right? Yes. Um, so what was remarkable about that that made him such a remarkable scholar? Well, this is the period after the universal caliphate had collapsed and uh, the Muslim world in the 10th century was in a state of political disintegration. 
But one of the features of the, of the medieval Muslim world was that it retained a cultural unity and identity. And instead of having one centre in Baghdad or whatever, there were numerous different cultural centres or numerous different places where uh, intellectuals worked. And, and it became, amongst the many dynasties that followed the Abbasids, it was something of, if you like, a fashion, a statement, a legitimising device to have intellectuals at your court. And so there was a wide variety of patronage available. Now, where Biruni came from, Khorazm, is the delta of the Oxus River, which flows from the Pamir Mountains down into the deserts of what is now Uzbekistan. And there it spreads out and it creates a sort of inland uh, delta. And it was, since the earliest history, it's been very fertile, it's been very densely populated, um, and, but at the same time very isolated. Amira Benison, can we dig in a bit more about his early life? What do we know about it, and, and how did he get this remarkable early education? He must have had that to get going. He must have been great teachers. Indeed. I mean, we, we, we actually know relatively little about his, educa- his early educational formation. It's obvious that he um, studied um, two different kinds of science. Um, on the one hand, he studied, studied what sometimes described as the Arab sciences or the religious sciences, so he was skilled in things like jurisprudence, law, the exegesis of the Qur'an. But on the other hand, he also studied the um, what are often called the Greek sciences or the sciences of the ancients. So he also became um, very proficient in mathematics, astronomy, also astrology, which, although nowadays seen as a pseudoscience, was closely associated with astronomy in those days. Um, and uh, as Hugh was saying, you know, he was able to engage with all kinds of different scholars um, in the region in which he was living. There were this multiplicity of sort of local courts where scholars gathered, where they exchanged views. So although we don't know that much about the actual details of Al-Biruni's personal education, we do have a fairly good idea of the kind of education he would have had access to, these sort of dispersed centres of learning um, in Uzbekistan and other places. Two things I take from that, Amira, see if we can go any further. One is his, his deep knowledge of Greek thought, these, the, the, these fantastic Arab scholars over these centuries, not only translated the great Greek work, but they added to it, and he had seemed to have had complete uh, access to Aristotle. Can you bring that in, first of all? And then I'd like to dig away at the mathematics. Why was he so quickly so advanced in mathematics? But let's take the Greek stuff first. Um, well, I think I think the point there is, of course, um, you know, he's a contemporary of people like Avicenna. Um, they all had access to the Greek sciences. In most of these cities, there were libraries which were um, full of Greek works which had been translated into Arabic, including the works of Aristotle. Um, relatively less work from Plato, um, although some things... Uh, um, particularly Neoplatonism, had been translated. So there's a wide range of materials which which it was people were commonly able to access in the libraries which were um, built up by these rulers, the Khwarazm Shahs in this case, or the Sarmanids, or other dynasties who were um, trying to make their mark at this time by patronising knowledge. And I think the important thing is just to remember that at this point there doesn't seem to be any disparagement of non-Islamic or non-Arab science. Um, it's fully integrated among these intellectual circles. 
And we have to remember that this time, Europe was, this is very broad, because it was in the Dark Ages, that this was a, a blaze of, of scholarship going across this, this particular Arab world, which then carried through to the Renaissance and carried on into the, into the modern age. We're not going to get any further than mathematics, are we? We don't really know how he got to know so much so early. No, but I mean, in the same way, there was, you know, there was already a mathematical tradition um, in the Islamic lands. There were mathematicians working there. Euclid had been translated. So, there, again, there was access to Greek mathematics, which Arab mathematicians were building on and working with, which he would have had access to. So you have to rest on the fact that he was very, 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 very clever. <laughs> he was very clever, and he had access to a lot of information. I mean, I think we mentioned this when we talked about Avicenna some time ago, but, of course, you know, the fact that um, Muslims were using paper meant that volumes of works were much more readily available than they would have been if one was just working with parchment or other materials. Can I, uh, you mentioned the courts, there were sort of culture wars between the courts. You define, one of the ways you defined yourself was how many extremely clever and able intellectuals you had in your court. Um, can you give us a little bit more about that? What would he be at the court? He was at the local court, started off at the local court, and what would he be described as? Uh, would he be part of the household and so on? He became um, part of the um, court of Mahmoun, one of the Khwarazm Shahs, and he's, his position is sometimes described as that of Nadim, which means a boon companion, someone who didn't necessarily have a, a formally defined role in the sense of a position, but who was an advisor, a companion, someone that the ruler would demonstrate his, um, his sort of ability to rule by engaging in intellectual discussions with. But he was probably also used as an ambassador on occasion to undertake missions for al-Ma'mun. So he had a... It's, you can't find one word, really, for his, his role. It was... Um, Sort of multiple different things he would do, but he was very close to the ruler, and this was seen as a mark of a good ruler to have these kind of intelligent, well-educated people around them. James Montgomery, in a, let's say around a thousand, I mean, you've got to give or take a few years there, but that'll do. He came into contact with, as Amira said, with <coughs> another great and extraordinary polymath of that time, uh, Avicenna. Um, for people who can't bring to mind instantly the programme we did on Avicenna a few years ago. Can you tell us what they had in common and how they differed? Um, <clears throat> well, Avicenna was the foremost uh, philosopher uh, of his generation and, and of his time. Um, he was the recognised, uh, from a very early age, the recognised expert on the interpretation of Aristotle. He was also a politician, um, so uh, he spent some time as the vizier uh, to um, one of the local courts. What they would have had in common uh, is this broad-based basic education that we've been hearing about. And it seems that uh, in teenage years, um, there was an opportunity for aspiring students to specialise in one subject or another. Biruni chose applied mathematics and astronomy. Avicenna had developed his interest in philosophy through reading every bit of Aristotle he could get by the age of 16 or 17. So they shared... Um, uh, very much the same uh, educational background, but they differed enormously uh, in how they viewed natural philosophy. So for Avicenna, um, Aristotle um, had begun to ask the right questions and provide most of the right answers. Uh, for Elbiruni, um, he was a little bit more sceptical and took a slightly more um, quizzical stance towards the uh, ancient Greek tradition when it came to accounting for natural phenomena. 
And so I'll be Can already... you give us an example, though? Yes, yeah. Um, well, the uh, uh, natural philosophy of the day said that uh, when an object was cooled, it would shrink. And Albiruni poses, I've said, a question to say that why is it then that when we have water in a glass jar and we freeze it, the glass jar breaks? So the water is obviously expanding. Avicenna doesn't provide a very um, convincing answer to this very simple question. And Albiruni does this in a treatise uh, called The Questions and Answers. Um, he asks uh, Avicenna 18 questions. Ten of them relate to Aristotle's work on the heavens. Eight of them relate to these general issues of, of natural philosophy. Avicenna, who is obviously the more senior of the two, irrespective of their age, because Albiruni is posing the questions, and so it was the custom for the student to pose the questions of the master. Avicenna answers these questions one by one, um, and Albiruni is dissatisfied with the answers. Can you give us another example or two? Of yes, I can, good, yeah. Um, Avicenna um, gives answers. Albiruni then asks a further 15 questions, and Avicenna... Um, perhaps uh, because of the um, uh, burden of the offices of state, instructs his prize pupil, Al Masumi, to answer Al Biruni. Um, I think that Avicenna was on the end of uh, 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 the short straw here. And Can that, we have um, one more specific example? Yes, there's I'm sorry one. To it's, be it's, looking uh, for an extra sweet, but actually. No, <laughs> there's one which is, which is very, very interesting. It's a slightly obscure passage, and if I've, uh, there's some contention as to how uh, it's interpreted. But um, Aristotle in On the Heavens says that um, planets must move in a, in, in a, in a complete circle, in a, form a perfect circle, because otherwise a vacuum would be, would be created. Now, Albiruni asks um, uh, Avicenna, um, why is it that um, when objects move around an axis in such a way that they either form an oval or a lentil shape, um, they don't seem to have any problem in completing the circuit and um, um, Albiruni reckons that there is no need for a vacuum in this and therefore that the whole notion of the circular movement of the heavens is in fact um, uh, something that Aristotle has um, uh, eff effectively invented. Um, what Albiruni seems to be talking about is the elliptical movement of the planets, something that Kepler took up in the 17th century in his laws of, of, of uh, planetary movement. Um, Avicenna admits that Aristotle is not at his strongest at this point um, and there's a very interesting exchange between the two um, but Avicenna says, well, we must remember what Themistius says Themistius says that um, um, uh, we should always interpret the, the philosopher Aristotle in the best possible way and Avicenna effectively uh, admits that Albiruni is right um, but um, then deflects um, uh, the argument by uh, a quibble and says, of course, things which move inside the celestial sphere, i.e. the planets and so on, are different from the celestial sphere itself, which is tantamount to perfection. And that really is, is not a proper answer, in my opinion. <laughs> so Albironi had Avicenna on the run. Um, oh, that's great. And I wish we could go through all the questions. Maybe we'll come back to the 18 questions in a year or two when people's excitement has subsided. <laughs> um, right. The first book he wrote, I mean, he's talking about, he's talking about measurement and time, isn't he? <clears throat> yes. A very young man, his first book, yeah. Um, so <clears throat> when he was 27, in the year 1000, he dedicates um, uh, a work, the title of which is roughly translated as The Extant Remains of um, Bygone Eras. Um, in fact, <clears throat> he worked on this book for the rest of his life. Um, and um, in his late 60s, uh, he completed it again some 40 or so years later. Effectively, what it is, is an exercise in chronography, in the charting and the mapping of time. And the subject that Albiruni chooses uh, are religious festivals. 
how do all the previous world religions um, prior to Islam calculate their religious feasts, their festivals, and how do they determine the time that these ought to be celebrated in? And he goes through a list. Um, he starts off with the Persians. Those before Zoroaster were thought to be Buddhists, so he discusses them. Those after Zoroaster were obviously Zoroastrians. Then he moves on to the Sogdians, which uh, roughly is in present-day Tajikistan, Uzbekistan. He moves on to his own people, the Khorezmians. He moves on to Jews, uh, Christians. He talks about uh, late antique pagans from Haran and then gets on to the Muslims himself. And what he's trying to do is to work out how accurately time can be charted. And that's one of his big obsessions. He, after all, was effectively um, uh, uh, occupied in, uh, um, uh, through numerous courts as an astronomer. And one of the jobs of the astronomer was determining the times of prayer. Uh, so he has this deep-rooted fascination uh, with time. And one of the things that he says is that um, counting, um, calculation, enumeration, and I include lists in this, is fundamental to man's existence. So his vision of man's anthropology is through is that man is a counting animal and not a political animal. And we must remember that he was a very accomplished astronomer without a telescope. Um, Hugh Kennedy, now, the, already been mentioned, but a significant thing, a figure enters his life, um, Mahmoud of Ghazni. Can you tell us how he came into Bruni's life and what immediate effect he had on it? Mahmoud of, of Ghazni was a Turk by origin from Central Asia. His father had lived in what is now Kyrgyzstan in the remote steppes of Central Asia, but had been employed as a professional soldier, basically, by a local Persian dynasty, the Salmanids. So Mahmoud was brought up in a Muslim environment, a Muslim military environment. And uh, when his father died, he took over, as it were, the warlordship that his father had had and his, his father's followers and determined to establish himself as a major political figure in what is now Afghanistan and the borders of India. And um, one of the things that he wanted to do was establish a proper court, a distinguished court that people would look up to, and so he needed a number of court intellectuals uh, to, to make this a proper uh, palace set up. And uh, Biruni in, in Kharazm was an obvious target, if you like, for his recruitment. He conquered Kharazm and he effectively kidnapped or, um, Biruni and took him back to his court. And Biruni spent the rest of his life, this is about 1017, um, spent the rest of his life effectively as a court intellectual with Mahmoud of Ghazna. And the great thing that happened there, Amir Benison, is that Mahmoud decided to invade India and it, it took Biruni with him. Yes. That, that's one version of the story. Well, I'd prefer your version, but that's the version <laughs> I've got at the moment. Um, yeah, well, indeed... Um, I mean, there's a. The odd thing is that um, Al Biruni's biographies talk very little about the period when he was at Mahmoud's court um, from around 1017 till Mahmoud's death in 1030. Um, Mahmoud was already engaged on the conquest of India. But, but by India, we don't really mean the whole of the subcontinent. Um, Mahmoud's conquests and um, raids and incursions were primarily in the Indus Valley region, what's now Pakistan rather than what's now India. He did make some raids into sort of the Gangetic Plain area, but relatively few. And um, so he was already engaged in India, going on annual campaigns before Al-Biruni arrived at the court in Ghazna, by whatever means he arrived there. Um, and then we have 
very little reference. We, we, we have almost no reference to Al-Biruni actually going to India. Nevertheless, we've got a 600-page book, which a lot of which came from interviews, uh, as we understand it. And we've got page after page after page on Indian signs, which had, uh, scarcely appeared before, and details about how people shaved and how... So he got it from somewhere. Let's prove... Let's say that we can't prove he went there, but if he didn't, uh, how did he get a hold of this immense amount of information which has been lauded by people for the last thousand years? Well, I mean, this is the, this is the fascinating question. Um, I mean, when you look at India, his... Um, his geographic sense is quite weak. It, it's a list of places with very little description of the kind you ordinarily find in geographical works. It, it's difficult to see him as an eyewitness. His description of places is so, often I'm sorry to cut a across, little complicated. How do you think he got the stuff then? Well, you, I was just, you, get, I was just getting think, on to right, that. Fine. Yeah, I think he, I think obviously one of the well, not say the purposes of conquest, but one of the effects of conquest was the capture of individuals. So when Mahmud went into the Punjab, the Indus Valley region, he definitely captured large numbers of people who were also brought back to Ghazna, just as Al-Biruni himself had been bought from Kharazm. So that you can imagine in Ghazna, this kind of frontier border town where Mahmud's trying to build up a court, he was actually collecting elites from all the regions he raided or conquered and bringing them together. So I think there's no disputing that Al-Biruni had a great deal of contact with many people of Indian origin, Brahmins and others. It's known that Mahmud of Ghazna had Indians within his army. The Ghaznavid army was very um, ethnically mixed. It had Turkish warriors as the elite commanding group. But there were Arabs from Khorasan, um, Afghans, Indians other Dalamite soldiers from the Caspian Sea. So it was a very um, multiracial army. He also brought um, artisans, and this is something that Timur later did in Central Asia as well. In his pro in sort of raiding and conquest, he captured intellectuals, craftsmen and scholars and brought them back to his city. Hugh Kennedy, can you give us some idea of the structure of this book? The structure of the book is it goes through the uh, various areas of, of Hindu knowledge. He's, um, and it's essentially about Hinduism. He, he says nothing about Buddhism, which was effectively extinct. Can we just, just say how extraordinary that was that a Muslim should want to talk about, discuss and write about Hinduism at the time? It, would, it was the most extraordinary thing even to want to do, let alone do it at that length and in that depth. Yes, and particularly considering the environment he was working in, uh, Mahmud of Ghazan was raiding India essentially to plunder temples. He headed for the major Hindu Hindu shrines because he wanted the gold and silver that he could find there. There's no indication that Mahmud had any interest in Hindu culture whatsoever Um, and saw it's essentially something to be plundered and destroyed. Uh, whereas um, Biruni took a lot of interest in, above all things, the things that James was talking about, the measurement of time, how they measure their festivals, um, um, rituals of purity amongst the Hindus, how you become a Brahmin, what Brahmins were, and so on. It's described as a work of anthropology, but it's only in a certain sense that. It's about the religious and intellectual life of the Hindus. If you want to find out what sort of houses they lived in, what they ate, what they wore and so on, then there's nothing there. Um, But if you want to find out their thought systems, uh, then he's very eloquent about that. And he's particularly interested as well in how, as it were, Hinduism compares with Greek ideas of science and wisdom. There's two families in the same house. Sorry to interrupt. He talks of them as two families in the same house, doesn't he? Yes, 
exactly. So it's this um, cross-cultural aspect. Why did he say that so firmly? Is it because of the... The, the number of gods they had or because of the similar sort of mathematical uh, aptitudes he discovered in them? Well, he's discussing um, uh, the mathematical aptitudes, certainly, but he is saying about Hinduism that it is much more than just simple idol worship with tons of gods. There is a system to it. It is a. It has, has philosophical background and, and, and so on. And that's what distinguishes him from, from the other people who were... Finally, I said at the beginning, and maybe I was just being <coughs> rushing, it, rushing it through, that there was an Aristotelian structure to this. Is that correct? I haven't... I can't really comment on that, actually. <laughs> I think James is better on this. James. James Montgomery. Um, the... There, Al-Biruni describes uh, uh, in the introduction to the to the India, in very disingenuous terms. Uh, perhaps he's simply being over scrupulous that he's tried to apply a geometrical method in um, analysing the uh, the thoughts and beliefs of of the Indians. Now he could mean by that something like uh, 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 the Euclidean method of simply providing information uh, in uh, short apophthegmatic. Um, uh, 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 sentences, but what he actually means is um, that you do not talk about something um, unless you have first defined all of the functions and the meaning of the word and the terms in which you're going to use it. So what he effectively does um, is he begins with uh, the Hindu vision of uh, existence. He begins with God. He moves on to philosophy, ontology, how is the soul liberated from the body, talks about heaven and hell and so on. And he does this um, uh, roughly over the first uh, 17 chapters, but he also gives... There are 80 chapters. Uh, there are 80 of the... Yeah. the uh, this is the first 17. Um, and he mentions uh, the uh, religious literature of the... Uh, the Hindus, in order to prepare you for the next stage of his argument. The next stage of his argument is um, he then turns to the, how his description of how the Indians describe their own universe. So it's a cosmography. He begins with mathematical geography, and then from there he moves on to astronomy. Now this, I think, uh, as I read the work, uh, is preparation for the real substance. These are the first 30 chapters or so. The next 30 chapters, so the bulk of the book, is again concerned with how the Indians calculate time. It's a chronography. Um, <clears throat> and he begins with uh, the um, measurements for, for night and day. Um, he moves on from there through every conceivable permutation that the Indians have um, Two things. Can you give us any idea about how what, lots of other people doing this? Was he on his own here? Um, well, if other people were doing it, their work hasn't survived. Right. Um, this, uh, I think, um, we can be fairly confident is, is something unique to Biruni. And right, still itching away in the back of my mind, I'm awfully sorry, but to take up Amira's more or less definite uh, declaration that he didn't go there, yes. where do you stand on that? Um, I agree with Amira. Um, there is one reference to uh, a trip to um, India. It's not in the, in, in the India itself, in Al-Biruni's work. It's in a later work. Uh, and Al-Biruni had devised his own method for measuring the radius of the earth through observing the height of a mountain. And he goes to Mount Nandana in the Punjab. And he calculates the, the circumference, doesn't he? He does. The um, world is round for him, and he, he's very nearly perfectly yes, right in mean, the measurement. Yes, astonishingly accurate. Yeah. But he says he, cal he, he did this calculation on this particular mountain in the Punjabi mountain range of salt. So 
And that's the only time that I'm aware of that he actually mentions uh, um, being in India. And in the India, the, the book itself, he does allude to restricted freedom. He says in the introduction that I haven't been able to move freely. And I take that as a reference to the fact that for 13 years he was effectively um, a hostage of Mahmoud. So basically Indian intellectuals roped in by his, uh, his, his boss were coming back to the court and he was <coughs> learning Sanskrit from them, yes. interviewing them, <coughs> gaining his knowledge from them. Right, <coughs> that's cleared up. Hugh he Kennedy, can, can we just move to his thoughts, to the development James has started on his, what he's telling us about religion both Hinduism and how he's comparing it. And he brings in Christianity, he brings in, and of course the apex of us. His concern is, is Islam. But what he's talking about there? Well, he's, he's a good Muslim, and for him, Islam is a perfect religion. He's in no sense a sort of atheist or free thinker or anything like that. But he does recognise that other religions share certain sorts of core values, even if apparently they're very different. And... Um, he also includes in that effectively Greek philosophy, uh, Greek philosophy and Plato and so on, again, as uh, having a valid religious point of view. And this is very important, not just intellectually, but also socially, because uh, the view of most of the people at the court of Mahmud was that Hindus were not people of the book, they didn't have a fundamentally worked-out religious faith, and that they were essentially expendable, therefore. I mean, they could be killed at will and, and, and you could do anything you wanted to them because they didn't have any rights, because they didn't have a proper religion. So when, when he explains that Hinduism uh, is, and, and Christianity, uh, but, but when he explains that Hinduism is a valid religion, he's making a pitch, as, if you like, for the rights of the Hindu subjects of, of Mahmoud of Ghazna, at least. So it has implications that go beyond just the, the, the intellectual. Amira, can you develop this in the context of Muslim thought at the time? Is, it, is he almost saying you've got to take these people a lot more seriously than you are taking them? They're not cannon fodder. They're not just to be looted and, and carted off. They have a, a system which is well worth examination and consideration. I think he is, but I think one can exaggerate the... I mean, obviously, we were, we're already saying that Mahmoud was bringing Hindu elite back to Ghazna, so obviously he's not simply killing... Everyone, you know, he Mahmoud does recognise that there may be some prestige attached to capturing the intellectual elite of the Punjab and being, bringing them back to Ghazna. Um, so I think Al-Biruni is special. He does stand out by his intellectual curiosity, but I, I think one would want to counterbalance that also by saying that obviously for some time within the earlier Abbasid court in Baghdad, there had also been appreciation of Sanskritic knowledge. I mean, although the translation movement focused on Greek materials... There have been earlier translations, particularly of astronomical tables collected via Sindh, um, the Zij tables. So there was a, already a sense that the Indians were very skilled in astronomy and that they had their... And, and as an astronomer, Al-Biruni would naturally have become sort of drawn into finding out more about that. I, I think where he's unique is in taking it so much further and writing such a lengthy book about the belief systems and chronology and cosmology of the Indians. James Montgomery, the sort of information he was putting in the book, would that be very, uh, about the lives, of, uh, not so much the daily lives, cause, because I've already been told by Hugh that there was very little of them, but about what was going on in that society, would that be startling news to his Muslim audience, in which would be tiny but elitist and influential? Um, <clears throat> the issue of the audience is, is something which um, um, raises a number of uh, quite difficult 
questions. Um, it's obvious from what Biruni says that um, he's written this um, almost as a heresiography so that Muslims can engage with um, uh, Hindus in religious debate. Um, he is aware of the, <clears throat> of the fact that um, both the, the Indians think that the Muslims are, not, uh, are, are deviant from the truth and the Muslims think that the Indians are deviant from the truth. Uh, so um, I think his audience for this uh, is the uh, elite at, at Mahmoud's um, court, uh, the Muslim elite. Um, it was commissioned by um, an otherwise unknown member of that elite. So Biruni was asked to draw on his expertise in order to provide this um, account of, of Indian beliefs in order to enable Muslim intellectuals to engage with these um, uh, Brahmin scholars in debate. Before we move away from India, the India, Hugh Kennedy, <clears throat> finally, he's, uh, in this book, Biruni is very true to himself and 48 chapters are devoted to thought. Um, what is he most? In which areas is he most um, keen to uh, pass on what he's found out about uh, thought, the Hindu uh, uh, thought system? Well, it is essentially, as James has been stressing, the the, the question of time, the question of the uh, the festivals, the question of their view of the universe and astronomy. He's keen to pass on the intellectual side of of, of Hindu thought. Well, I mean, all, all thoughts intellectual, but the intellectual aspects of it, rather than, as it were, the social philosophy. Though he does talk about the caste system and how different the Hindu caste system is from the perceived egalitarian nature of, of Muslim life. I'm intrigued by this link he makes with the Greeks, and we've talked about Aristotle quite a bit. Can you give us? Can you be even more specific to just kind of nail that one? You're looking around the table. <laughs> I'm filling in time here. James is the Aristotle man. <laughs> <James. laughs> Uh, <clears throat> Biruni, in his view of how human civilization develops, was of the opinion that the ancient Greeks and the ancient Indians shared the same set of uh, ideas and notions. Um, <clears throat> he actually says in one of his other works that the doctrine of transmigration, which the, um, the Hindus believed in, was borrowed by them from Pythagoras. So the further back he goes in time, he becomes, um, if you like, a sort of uh, a religious syncretist. The Greeks and the Indians share the same effective set of beliefs. He thinks that the Greeks have progressed more than the Indians have. And part of the India is Albironi's attempt to understand why the Indians haven't achieved what the Greeks have achieved. And he puts the blame very firmly on uh, their language, on Sanskrit. Uh, and it's uh, uh, the a tendency to uh, rely on uh, synonyms and homonyms as opposed to uh, exact um, uh, uh, terminology. So he thinks that there is something not scientific about Sanskrit. And so I think that this is, in a sense, um, an exercise in historical archaeology for him. Um, Islam, of course, is at the top, but the Greeks uh, formed a very important stream, as we've heard from Amir and Hugh uh, uh, in Islam, uh, and Al-Biruni is pondering in himself why the Indians haven't progressed according to this pattern. Amira, the, in the India was completed around <coughs> 1030, around that time. We're always talking around, don't we? Uh, and shortly after that, his master or his uh, captor, Mahmoud, died. What effect did that have on Biruni? Um, it, it seems that, that from that point onwards, he felt a lot more free. Although he chose to remain in Ghazna under Mahmoud's successor, his son, Masoud, um, he seems to have felt much more comfortable um, 
he dedicated his next work, the Qanun, um, another work of astronomy, to Mas'ud, um, which suggests that the relationship between the, the two was much friendlier and more like his earlier relationship with Mamun in Khwarazm. He seems not to have liked Mahmoud. As you get, we, I'm, I'm talking from the notes here, get in the text. Did he, say, did he write that while Mahmoud was alive or was that after Mahmoud popped his clogs? Um, he finished it after Mahmoud's death. I mean, I think we have to imagine al-Biruni working on a lot of things yeah. at one time, rather like scholars do today. But um, he probably finished the India just after Mahmoud's death. But as James has said, it wasn't dedicated to Mahmoud. This doesn't seem to be a work that Mahmoud commissioned. He wasn't the patron. Someone else was the patron, and al-Biruni sort of writes it almost in a vacuum, um, whereas with the, 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 the Mas'udi canon, he's, he's dedicating it to the ruler, which is a clear mark of a sort of a more positive relationship between the two. And, of course, he chooses to spend the rest of his life in Ghazna. So he seems to have become reconciled to being there and to become a much more prominent court intellectual rather than the much more sort of... Um, figure in the background that he is with Mahmoud. So this, this uh, later work, which uh, is considered as a very important work too, this Canon for Masood, James Montgomery, can you... Uh, is it, it says here, as it were, that it's a rewriting of Ptolemy. Yes. Right, can you help us on that? Um, well, the most important work of astronomy um, in uh, the classical period, both uh, uh, late Greek antiquity and... Um, uh, uh, Islamic culture is the Almagest of, of Ptolemy. It's basically uh, a set of mathematical accounts for um, planetary motion. And um, El-Biruni sets out um, uh, to uh, provide the new ruler with uh, a comprehensive guide to the structure of the universe, the movement of the planets, um, together with a number of his own Observations. Uh, some historians of mathematics, for example, have seen in one or two of Al-Biruni's calculations anticipations of uh, functional relationships. Um, but effectively, I, I think what this is uh, is a sense that um, uh, the Almagest um, has reached the, the limit of its applicability. Al-Biruni wants to uh, rewrite the astronomical rulebook. The Qanun is, in fact, a, a set of rules. And what's really unusual is that although he provides a lot of astronomical tables, the Zijas, which uh, Amira mentioned, he actually shows the parameters whereby he, he came to the calculations so that you can then use all of his findings in order to compute the, 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 the position of the planets for yourself. There's an implication there, Hugh uh, that he was in many ways anticipated things that happened much, much later in the West. Is that, uh, is that something that you can bring to bear? Uh, yes, he certainly does anticipate things that happen, but it's not clear. His legacy is in, in the Muslim world is, is very small. Um, it's, there's no direct connection, as it were. His, uh, there is one significant manuscript of his India book. It, we get it by a very thin thread. It mm. survived. Um, there are one or two references to it. It appears again in the Ottoman period and has been taken up by... Well, it was taken up by 19th century European intellectuals and particularly the, the, the British, who are, of course, extremely interested at that stage in Indian culture and Indian history, and that's high-profiled it. And in the 20th century, by Muslims, um, in, particularly in Iran, because he's considered to be an, uh, an Iranian, looking for intellectuals who they can, as it were, p put up on the world stage. As, uh, but his overall... Nobody seems to have 
read his book very much. Nobody followed on his work, really. Nobody built on his discussion of, of, of India, for example, and, and took the research any further. It, it's a bit of a shooting star. Amira, having started... Can we learn anything much of significance about his character from his writings or the writings about him? We know um, it was obviously a very keen question. I mean, to, to take on Avicenna and, and fox him was, uh, was quite something. I mean, he's clearly a, a very brilliant and very flexible mind. I mean, as has been said many times today, he, he was very obsessed with lists. He is a, a list maker par excellence. You know, he's very interested in his issues of time. Um, he's more interested in applied than theoretical science. And he's got a very inquiring mind, obviously, the fact that he wanted to sit down with Indians, whether in India or Ghazna, uh, and find out everything he could from them. He's very inquisitive. And we mentioned his interest in the natural world was enormous. You know, he did write on about minerals. He wrote, he wrote a book on pharmacy, which we haven't mentioned yet. And... Um, he, in that book, which was a typical pharmacological work, you know, he lists all the different herbs and plants you can use and gave their names in five different languages, which is a remarkable achievement. And I think in total, there are about 20 different dialects and languages are actually employed in the work. So he was a, a hugely intelligent man. But in terms of character, we don't get much sense of the, of the real man. We don't know about his personal life or anything like that. Finally, James, uh, briefly, I'm sorry to say... Um, can you give us just one example, two examples, of this anticipatory faculty he had of being way ahead of the game? Um, well, I think I've, I've sort of uh, alluded to, to some of them. The first is a possible potential, a, a potential anticipation of the elliptical movement of, of the planets. Um, in terms of uh, pharmacology, there were one or two substances that uh, he seems to have used, um, uh, derived from local herbs and so on. Um, he was a, a man who was at the cutting edge of his science. Well, the story will go on, I'm sure, I hope. Anyway, thank you very much. That was terrific. Amira Benison, Hugh Kennedy, James Montgomery. Next week, we'll be talking about the Neanderthals. Thanks for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this Radio 4 podcast. You can find hundreds of other programmes about history, science and philosophy at bbc.co.uk forward slash Radio 4.